So tonight, I'm doing a talk called The Search for Authenticity. Uh, Liz, would you please um, work the computer for me? What does authenticity mean? Can you give me a guess, anyone? A word? Rorschach test? Genuine. Genuine. Honest. The real stuff. Honest. Vulnerable. Real. Vulnerable. That's great, because those are the three words I wrote down. <laughs> Real, genuine, true. <laughs> but my question is, we are true to what? Real to what? It can be an elastic word. Charles Taylor has given us a helpful definition of authenticity. Charles Taylor... Uh, is or was a professor of McGill University, but a very well-known um, scholar, philosopher, and Catholic. He's written several books. Uh, he's most famous for Secular Age, um, but he also wrote a little book called The Ethics of Authenticity. Uh, at least that's the British title. Uh, I believe the Canadian title is The Malaise of Modernity or the malaises of modernity. Catchy name, it was flying off the bookshelf. <laughs> but he gives a helpful definition of authenticity and calls it a twinned moral ideal. The first is that there's a desire to be original, to be unique, uh, or you could say to be different, to be only you. The second part, which is firmly attached because it's twinned, is the desire to be affirmed. And not only just to be affirmed, but to be affirmed in that uniqueness. So this is the twinned moral ideal. And that is the um, definition that I'm working with tonight. Now, when we thought, think of authenticity, some people see it as a good word. Some people see it as a naughty word. Uh, a word that people use in to do what they want to do, no matter what you think about them. Christians sometimes have has um, questioned self-expression, self-authenticity, and has thrown the whole ball of wax out. But I think that they've thrown the baby out with the bathwater. I really like how Taylor calls it a twinned moral ideal. Uh, that it shouldn't be denigrated as a pursuit, as a selfish pursuit, but actually it's a moral pursuit. <coughs> and so we need to understand it rightly. However, in that, I'm going to speak about the cultural pursuit for this moral ideal undercuts its own hopes and actually creates many negative consequences. And then uh, I'm going to be speaking about that. Uh, I'll give a brief historical overview of this move um, that Taylor calls inwardness. That means we have moved from this external world of relationship in a way toward the inside, into our minds, into our hearts, into our feelings. Um, and then I'm going to ask, how does it work culturally and does it work? 
And then I'll turn to the biblical view of what a biblical view of authenticity. And I believe that the Bible offers us a way to fulfill this twinned moral ideal. So the cultural view of authenticity. <clears throat> uh, Taylor explains that authenticity is most best expressed in our culture through expressivism. Expressivism is a way of expressing a, a philosophical thought or a philosophical movement. And this is the definition. Expressivism is the moral belief of locating our identity in the ability to express our own will. Okay. Locating our identity in the ability to express our own will. So um, to know who you are should come through your ability to express that identity. That's not has, that has not always been the way we've seen identity. And maybe you're thinking, well, that's obvious. So I need to explain how we got here and how it has not always been the case. So I'm going to give a brief history of inwardness. So if you were born in the medieval framework, the medieval metaphysical framework, I am would be followed by what I was born to do or in what class system I was born. So you would say, I'm a maiden. Uh, I'm a blacksmith. Uh, I'm wealthy. I'm aristocracy. These would be your identity markers, and there wouldn't be much question. There wasn't a sense of self-pursuit. It was more of a, it was something given to you. And not only was it given to you, but it was important that you fulfilled that role within the metaphysical, um, within the medieval metaphysical framework. If the aristocracy was not doing what they were supposed to doing, then the serfs, you know, struggled. Uh, everyone needed to do their job. The king needed to be the king. The servant needed to be the servant. Otherwise, the whole system collapses. So you didn't ask about, do I like my work? <laughs> Or at least it wasn't a question that, uh, where you could say, I don't like my job, I want to do something else, or why can't I be king? It wasn't something that you would consider. However, this framework was, at the very beginning, it began to be deconstructed. Uh, Descartes cut the chain of being, this chain of being from the wealthier down. Uh, man over animal over uh, plant life, something like that. And Descartes had this famous saying, I think, therefore I am. That's where he located where we could understand what was true. That was a monumental shift. He started looking for truth and saying, okay, I want to start with what, something I cannot doubt. I cannot doubt that I am thinking. Therefore I am. But this was the move inward, and it got followed up by someone. Uh, so it moved from the external to the internal, and Rousseau further developed this idea. He said that um, we need to push back the external constraints that try to com conform us in order to find that voice within, that nature. There's something within us that uh, there's this this nature within us, and so maybe we would talk about resonating with something. And Rousseau was very much about moving toward that express expression.
but it still wasn't in full form yet. You were still trying to connect to nature that was without and also within. Well, Herder came along soon thereafter, and he made a very interesting move to say, we must discover our original way of being. What is, what is me and not you? as a moral obligation. Not just something curious, but something that was important for us to discover. It was a moral obligation for you to discover who you were. And that would be expressed, um, that was uh, uh, expressed through aesthetics, through art. Well, then we move to Nietzsche in the late 19th century, where he says that now we have to critique not just the set, the standard set of values, but all sets of values. That the self is expressed, he had a sense of aesthetics, but expressed through the will. So you bring that life, you don't only just manifest it into art, but you bring it through the, through the power of your inner being out. And so it was this expression, not only to express who you are, but to exert yourself onto a world that was meaningless. Well then, much later, the Carl Rogers, a famous psychologist and, education, and educator, said that uh, we need to encourage a person, rather than just a battle for themselves, that we need to encourage them to believe in themselves. That they need to believe in themselves uh, in order to be actualized. So self-actualization was um, this category uh, for Carl Rogers. And often you could find it through education and psychology. So this is not, Taylor um, speaks about this and he says it's not a straight line. It's not a logical line, but it is a line of circumstances that happened that has led us to where we are now. He said that this first moment by Descartes did not have to lead us to self-actualization, but that is where we have gone. So authenticity if I can define it through the lens of these thinkers, is to find significance in how I am different through artistic expression. I need to know what makes me different and express it through some aesthetics, how I dress, how I talk, how I am. So we've gone from Descartes, now we're on to Katy Perry and Pharrell. I had a clip by Pharrell, and if you just type in Pharrell Williams' words of wisdom on YouTube, you will find plenty. Uh, but he was, um, he's a singer, songwriter, uh, amazing musician. Uh, but on The Voice, you got to hear more of his inner thoughts, and he would always identify the truth that was in the person through the voice that they expressed. Okay? So when they sang, he sang, you sang the truth, the truth that is in you. Okay. The truth that is you. So he works out of this framework. Okay. Uh, Katy Perry, uh, she did not write the song Firework, but she's working out of the same framework. Um, I have the lyrics here. Uh, I'm not going to sing it for you, <laughs> to your disappointment. I'm not going to read all of it, just enough. Do you ever feel already buried deep, six feet under? I totally messed that up. Screams, but no one seems to hear a thing. Do you know that there's still a chance for you because there's a spark in you? 
You just got to ignite the light and let it shine. Just own the night like the 4th of July. Cause baby, you're a firework. Come on, show them what you're worth. Make them go ah, ah, ah as you shoot across the sky, I, I. <laughs> baby, you're a firework. Come on, let your colors burst. Make them go ah, ah, ah. You're going to leave them all in ah, ah, ah. You don't have to feel like a wasted space. Your original cannot be replaced. You can see the lyrics are really embodying this framework. Now, don't lose the plot. This is a moral ideal that is worthy of being pursued. I'm questioning the ways that it is pursued, uh, and I'll get to that in just a moment. But I want to show you a picture of Katie um, Perry demonstrating the fireworks, um, the inner, the inner fireworks. So there's fireworks coming out of people's sternums the whole time. Okay, so. Uh, <clears throat> one more. Okay, how does authenticity work? So I've given you kind of a narrative, a historical play out, and you'll be happy that we're done with philosophy in that way, though we will work kind of uh, layman philosophy now. One, there's no external standard to which I must conform. Significance comes through choice. It's not in what I choose, but that I choose. It's not in what I choose so much as in what in that I choose. So the emphasis is, is on my uh, on, is on that internal creative will. Okay, if I'm going to figure out who I am, I need to look within, find it, so I might express it. Carl Rogers, in his book, Freedom to Learn, he says, freedom is the realization that I can live myself here and now by my own choices. There's a real emphasis on choice. He also says, it is only when the person decides I am someone, I am someone worth being, I am committed to being myself, that change becomes possible. So you see where he's identifying salvation, in a way. You have to look within and establish your own worth. Uh, I am someone worth being. It's a, it's a self-affirmation. It's not an affirmation from the outside. It's a self-affirmation. And you're committed to it in order that change is possible. So what you have is that there's no external framework. Okay. Second is that liberty is established my, by my will. Another way of putting it is freedom is my control control over my choices, that I have choices, finding the unique and true me in my choices. This happens in two ways, negatively and positively. And freedom often has a freedom from and a freedom for. So whenever someone's talking about freedom, you think freedom from what? Freedom for what? Well, freedom to what? Negatively, this is that you want to deconstruct unchosen systems. Uh, this means even if you're born with certain um, criteria, maybe poor, uh, it can mean uh, whatever that you're born with. It can mean race. Uh, it can mean gender. That I want to deconstruct if I have not chosen it. 
I have to affirm it. I have to choose it for it to be for it to be a free choice, not something that I have to live up to, something that I didn't choose. Positive liberty is that I must increase opportunities. Okay, so you're trying to take away the systems you don't want so that you can make the choices you do want. The more opportunities I have, the freer I am, is the mentality. James Joyce uh, has a quote in The Portrait of an Artist as a Young Man. And he's in the bar, he's had a couple of Guinnesses, I suppose. And he sums up, now notice that this is a portrait as an artist as a young man. So it's really the development of an artist in a very uh, oppressive Catholic Irish school. He's drinking these Guinnesses, he's starting to become political and everything, and he wants to kind of get away from all these things that he did not choose. He did not choose to be Irish, he did not choose to be Catholic. Um, so, uh, he says this to his friend, this mystery that he wants to reveal to him about who he is, or a truth about life. And he says this, The soul is born, he said vaguely, first in those moments I told you of. It has a slow and dark birth, more mysterious than the birth of the body. When the soul of a man is born in this country, there are nets flung at it to hold it back from flight. You talk to me of nationality, language, religion. I shall try to fly by those nets. So there's a desire to escape all those things that he did not choose to be. And in fact, this is true for James Joyce himself. He wanted to get past Ireland, uh, I guess, Gaelic, um, English, um, Catholicism, Christianity. There's an irony he's, is that he won't be able to get past those nets. Uh, he has to depend on them in order to get past them. So James Joyce, and so there, most scholars see that Joyce is aware of this irony, or this tragic irony, is that in order to try to get past them, he has to depend on them. So James Joyce, his whole life, is writing in Irish vernacular about Catholicism, of being an artist in Catholicism, and of Ireland. So he depends on the very things that he's trying to use as platforms to get past them. You see this tragic irony? So he's trying to fly by those nets, by those nets. This is true for us. So does this form of authenticity work? Oh, I have two pictures of people. Uh, Caitlyn Jenner and Rachel Dolezal. Uh, so these are just two examples of people who have felt that they were born in a way that they did not choose. Uh, Caitlyn Jenner, famous for um, being born a man, but choosing uh, uh, or identifying and expressing that inter-identity, that identity as woman. And then Rachel Dolezal, um, she was the administrator or head administrator in Spokane or maybe the director of the NAACP uh, which is a African-American uh, organization in North America to try to uh, help the rights uh, and uh, um, the rights of African-American people or uh, in America. Well, 
it came out that uh, she was not African-American, that her parents are white Irish people. Well, um, she basically uh, said that, you know, she struggled for a long time, but that she never claims to be African-American. She claims to be black and that from early on she identified as black and that uh, she has asserted herself that um, that black is who she is even though she's not African-American. So you have this inner tension. But this is something that she has identified and so the NAACP had to figure out how to deal with this. Um, and they fired her uh, because she didn't represent African-American people. Uh, and Rachel Dolezal was very injured by this. Um, so those were just two examples of people born one way and identifying another in order to express who they, how they identify internally. Okay, so does it work? I'd say that there's inherent problems. And there's three. The burden on the self to create meaning. The increase of instrumentalism. I'll get to that. And the contradictory relationship to institutions. So this is my critique of the cultural view of authenticity before I turn to the biblical response. So first, there's an enormous burden that is placed on the self in order to create meaning. The meaning of who you are. First, this is difficult or impossible that choice cannot function autonomously. That means choice cannot, you remember I said it's not what you choose, but that you choose. So all the authority has to come within. The authority of God has to come from within in order to you, for you to make meaning. Um, but if it is so, it has no real authority or power except the power that you give it. You want something to have authority to give you meaning, but the meaning itself is that you choose. It has no authority to give you that meaning. There uh, is a quote from Dreyfus and Kelly in a book called All Things Shining. Uh, two atheists writing about a response to a meaningless society or a hyper-individualistic society. And they said, precisely because meanings are freely made up, however, meanings can also free be freely taken back. So if you say that God is your meaning... You can just as easily say, well, no, God's not working for me anymore, and I'm going to choose this. And if that's not working for you anymore, you can just place it and choose this. So what kind of authority does it have over you? It doesn't. So you're trying to say something has meaning, um, uh, but it cannot have meaning if it can be freely taken and given. Meaning can't be disposable for it to have real meaning. And Bela... Uh, and the other uh, sociologist that worked on habits of the heart said, if the self is defined by its ability to choose its own values, on what grounds are those choices themselves based? So why choose this as opposed to this? It has to have a meaning system prior to you choosing them. So you have this burden of self-creation. So choice cannot function autonomously, and it just burdens the one to be or not to be. Dreyfus and Kelly talk about Shakespeare as a person who described the metaphysical framework breaking down. And it's Hamlet, right? To be or not to be? 
that said um, that when he's talking and when he comes to this crescendo of saying to be or not to be, he's actually asking the metaphysical, metaphysical question of the 17th century of saying, do we choose to be or we choose not to be? Who am I and how am I to find meaning in a world that has been uh, cut? How can we be or not to be without a metaphysical framework other than we must become gods ourselves? Nietzsche saw this problem that if God is dead, then the burden must fall on me to become God. And he saw that as a joyous, joyous and also a despairing thing. We must have godlike wills. So I find this too heavy of a burden for a person um, to put on a person. Secondly, there's the increase. Oh, let's just go with this. Uh, here's another quote. My notes and my PowerPoint are not identical. You've noticed. But this is what uh, this is a long quote, but I think it's easy to follow. The free spirit is no longer constrained by any external norms at all for what is appropriate or permissible to do. That means you don't, uh, they're talking about post-Nietzschean world, a world that is where God is dead. It is literally true for the free spirit, spirit, as Dostoevsky worried it would be, that since there is no God, everything is permitted. Nietzsche, perhaps wriggling free from the overbearing constraint of a father and two grandfathers who held important positions in the Lutheran church, saw this as a joyous possibility indeed, that we can create meaning. But there is no joy in David Foster Wallace's world. David Foster Wallace is a, was a famous writer who, who was trying to find meaning in the mundane. Most people try to find meaning in the extraordinary, in the large experiences, in the spectacle. Well, David Foster Wallace said, if there's meaning, it's got to be found in the ordinary and in the boring. Uh, he never found it. Okay. Uh, so this book had, was written after his suicide. Okay. But he's a, a phenomenal writer. I really recommend his writings. He, he has, has a really good insight into culture. But he says, but there is no joy in Wallace's world. He's talking about his literary world. It is as if the true burden of this responsibility... The responsibility to escape from the meaninglessness and drudgery of a godless world by constructing a happier meaning for it out of nothing, literally ex nihilo as God himself once had done, was too much for any human spirit to achieve. It is a possibility that requires us to become gods ourselves. So if there is no meaning and you must find it or name it, then the burden for you to create meaning is on you. You must be God. You must have you must have the authority of God. Okay. The increase in instrumentalism. <clears throat> what I mean by instrumentalism, sorry for the so many ism words, but this is a word that I'm using directly from Charles Taylor's book. Uh, it means that if the world of meaning is within me to express it, then the world around me and I have to deconstruct the, the world around me, and I have to push it back, that means it, must, it then becomes material for me to express myself. So I start expressing my identity. If I, if I have, I said, choice cannot function autonomously, it comes out of the self, well, it must use something to say this is the meaning that identifies me. 
So Rachel Dolezal uses blackness, something outside in the external world that she has chosen to identify herself. So what she's doing is she's using the external world as an instrument to create her identity. She's using creation in order to establish her identity. <clears throat> Just as I said that James Joyce had to fly by those nets. He had to use nationality, language, and religion. I often try to put, I can burden my intimate relationships. You remember Tom Cruise to Renee Zellweger, you complete me. Uh, sometimes people will go into marriage hoping that they will find significance and meaning in their marriage partner, and that can be an incredible burden on the relationship. If you find all your identity and self-worth in your spouse, you will be wounded. You will be wounded. It doesn't mean that you cannot find your partner significant. <laughs> That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying if you're trying to find your personal worth in your spouse, that is damaging to them and it will be damaging to you. Uh, but it's also a burden on the world. I mean, we, we try to accomplish our significance through our job through our possessions, through our successes, any of those things that we might choose to identify us, even our failures in tragedy. Thirdly, the contradictory relationship to institutions. So the inherent problems is first, the burdens on the self to create meaning. The second is the increase of instrumentalism or using the world around you to um, create meaning. And the third one is this contradictory relationship to institutions. So this is closely related to the autonomous self in relationship to the world that you use. Well, then you become very distrustful of institutions. So you have seen an increase in voluntarism in churches and in communities. Uh, there was an article in Comment Magazine a publication out of Ontario. A man who wrote on Cascadian values, which is the area that we are, um, his name is Matthew Kemniak, he said that in the Northwest and in Western Canada, which is defined by Cascadian values, is that the high amount of voluntarism has put so much pressure on communities that what happens is that people want the benefits of the communities, but they don't want the moral obligations that come with it. They want the benefits of belonging, but they don't want to have to be responsible for anyone but themselves. So, so many churches and communities are struggling with this. And so there's, so there's a distrust of the institution. You want to push it back, and you want to just say, okay, I'm just going to, I'm just going to express myself here or there, find my find it here until it's not working for me, and then find it here. Well, this distrust of institutions, Taylor says, actually increases the power of the institution. It's a deep irony. <clears throat> to put it this way, if I abdicate my responsibility, I'm giving authority to another. Uh, authority is something inherent in the created order. As soon as you have a child, you see that you are now responsible. We are all responsible for the life around us. There are, there are structures to life. Right? 
And if we want to say that we don't want institutions, but institutions are necessary for life. Okay. Institutions are necessary for life. So what ends up happening is if we abdicate our responsibility, then the, the power of the institution won't grow. For example, with government. So many, uh, we can take the recent election in America, a lot of people were abdicating the responsibility to get involved. Uh, but then, but the government, as we see in America, has grown increasingly more powerful. Uh, in Canada, Taylor says that the government has become increasingly more powerful because people are no longer becoming civil civically responsible. Canada's better in this than in America, I believe, the looking for local government, local involvement. But the less we become involved in local culture, the stronger the, the larger government becomes because it's the one that starts saying, this is how you educate, this is how you give this, this is how you do this. And the government starts dictating how society is run rather than just being a, um, a political structure in which to run ourselves, if you see what I mean. Another way of seeing it is in consumerism. Uh, so in the government, you abdicate responsibility. Here, you say, well, I don't believe in corporations. Corporations are the evil of the world. But I really like that hat. That really shows me off. You know, That really makes my features really come alive. Something like that. And in fact, uh, can you exit the PowerPoint? And there's, that's fine, yes. I'm going to show you a clip from the Persuaders. And this is uh, a PBS special that was done a few years ago about how commercialism works and how it has worked in the absence of meaning. Uh, it's just a two-minute clip. So play that, okay? But uh, on the DVD player, you can just hit Command Tab. Okay, uh, and now go up to View. Enter full screen. Okay. Now you can hit just spacebar. Before, one that leapt right over what the product did to what the product meant. You know, it's not just a car, it's an expression of the culture, um, an aesthetic that is connected somehow to nature, infinity. These were the super brands like Nike, um, Starbucks, the Body Shop. And what they noticed these brands had in common was that they were uh, they, they they were engaging in a kind of a sort of pseudo spiritual marketing. So Nike said that they were about the meaning of sports, but more than that, that they were about transcendence through sports. Starbucks said that they were about the idea of community, a place that is a third place that is not home, not work. Benetton was, of course, selling uh, multiculturalism, racial diversity. This lesson that a brand could forge an emotional, even spiritual bond with today's cynical consumer wasn't lost on corporate America. What are you saying with your China plates? <laughs> 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 
this wave of corporate epiphanies in the mid-90s where all these companies you know, were told, you know, what your problem is, is you don't have a big idea behind your brand. So they would hire high-priced consultants and they would have these kind of corporate sweat lodges and gather around the campfire and, and, and sort of try to channel their inner brand meaning. And they would emerge from, from these through the processes sort of flushed and saying, you know, Polaroid isn't a camera, it's a social lubricant. When I was a brand manager of Procter & Gamble, my job was basically to make sure the product was good, develop new advertising copy, design the pack. Now a brand manager has an entirely different kind of responsibility. In fact, they have more responsibility. Their job now is to create and maintain a whole meaning system for people through which they get identity and understanding of the world. Their job now is to be a um, community leader. It is the big monopolistic Okay. Ad strategist. <clears throat> so, so this this brings me to the end of this um, view of a cultural view of authenticity. It's this pursuit for this twin moral ideal of being unique and to be affirmed in that uniqueness. Um, uh, but I find that the autonomous view or this cultural view subverts its own ideals. Uh, that it, in fact, creates damaging consequences. Now the Christian response often to this pursuit of authenticity is to throw it out, to discard it. Just get ye back into the church, or some traditional way of saying that. <laughs> but I think that the twin moral ideal is, is we miss it if, if um, we miss the gospel if we throw it out. The gospel fulfills this twinned moral ideal of being unique and being affirmed in that uniqueness. But the, but the biblical view, I'm going to start with something that seems a little confounding, a little strange introduction into what we have been talking about, is Jesus' words in the book of Matthew, chapter 16, verse 25. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. It's a very unusual way of putting it. Which life is lost? Which life is gained? That's the question. What I want to do is um, look at a biblical narrative, in a sense, of creation, fall, redemption, redemption through the lens of authenticity. And authenticity is found in this phrase in the Bible called the image of God. The image of God. <clears throat> so, to be authentic, biblically, begins with right relationship. It's not self-discovery, but rather it is love. It is, found, it is founded in love. It differs very... Um, so, in Genesis, the human is considered made in the image of God. That is absolutely crucial. Because it means that the nature of the human person is not one who is autonomous, trying to create meaning, but that is made with meaning. Prior to you being conscious... You were given, uh, you were given dignity. Uh, 
in the Bible it says that in your mother's womb I knit you together. I knew you. And so instead of alienation and conflict, authenticity is at the beginning by default in relationship. You cannot understand yourself if you cannot understand your maker. Now, the image of God is not primarily functional, as many people will put it. Uh, people try to identify language, rationality, will, creativity, the ability to self-reflect as the image of God. Now, these are things that make us unique from other animals. But the primary aspect of being made in the image of God is relational. The image of God. Not just an image, even though image implies of something. And it's of God. So our dignity comes by relationship. To know who we are, we need to know who we are of. So the more we know God, the more we come to know ourselves. But we need to be careful. It's not a God of the imagination or the God of our best thoughts. And so I think it's more accurate to say the more we know how we are known by God, we know ourselves. The more we know ourselves. Let me say that again. The more we know how we are known by God, the more we know ourselves. So I come into self-discovery by knowing what the Lord has said to me on who I am. Knowledge does not come from self-creation, but by declaration, revelation, intimacy. So this tells us two things. That we are known by God, not just to know God, but to be known by God as a way of authentic um, authentication or authenticity. Is that one, that we live in a personal universe. To say that in reality it's not me trying to create meaning in a world of material or in conflict with others who are also trying to create meanings. But that I am known. That the world is personal. That the God who created all things is personal. And that I am personal. And that I am not trapped in my mind. But that I am made a person who needs relationship. And that is how God has revealed his nature. Is that he has made you in that way. You are made for relationship. Secondly, we know that we have a place in this world. We are image bearers. The Bible doesn't just speak about our dignity, but of our responsibility. So not only are we to reflect God, we are also to represent God in his character. It doesn't mean that we need to represent God in his omniscience, knowing everything, or in his omnipotence, being all-powerful, but that we are to imitate God in his moral character. We are to represent God in this world through his character. His moral character. Uh, because this relationship that we have to him requires, um, requires a faithfulness to the relationship. Let's say that I'm being unfaithful to Julia. Then I'm going to struggle to under see her truly as she is or to understand myself in relationship to her. It's a faithfulness that allows us to become integrated into understanding one another. But since God is our creator, as we are faithful to him 
by how we live out here, we become aware of who we are, not only before him, but in the world. It's really becoming integrated. So the more we, are, the more we become more like him in his character, the more integrity we have, the more integrated we become. Because he's the one who has made us in his image. Therefore, when we become more like him, we become more who like we are supposed to be. However, Adam and Eve chose to, they, they, they pursued the right moral. They wanted to be like God, but they tried to choose it in their own power through creation. So they were called to be like God, but they wanted to be like God in their own power, through their own means. So they tried to find their identity through creation. Just as the material world, they tried to find their identity through something outside themselves. That was not God. And this created distortions of them seeing themselves. They had shame. They had disorder. And so that's why Paul in Romans 1 speaks about how those who exchanged the truth of God for a lie started trying to find their image in mortal things, in animals uh, or anything created. Um, they would wear osiris um, things and Isis. They would... They would kind of walk around in these Egyptian or these kind of costumes that represented gods. Uh, it's not just saying that they were trying to be costumes like, or they had like a little statue of like a raven and therefore that was, but actually they were trying to find their identity in something that was created, but by giving it some transcendence. Just saying, I want to take something that's created and make this something that gives me meaning. But this is precisely what cultural authenticity is doing. It is, it is sin itself trying to find our meaning and our identity through something created and, and moving it to be something transcendent. But when it fails us, as it will inevitably do, we displace it and try to live something else to be transcendent rather than looking to our creator. And when we do that, Paul says it creates all kinds of strife and disorder. It distorts any self-understanding. But even in the midst of sin, we still have hope. Because God continues to declare himself as knowing us. Even if we have not known him, or we don't look to him, he knows us. Imagine, uh, uh, you know, he calls after Adam's sins and Eve's sin. He walks into the cool of the garden... And he says, Adam. He's looking for Adam. He knows where Adam is. But he's in the pursuit of Adam. And then says, who told you that you were naked? He was looking. He was looking and looking for Adam, even in the midst of his sin. Think of Samuel, where the word of God was not being heard even by the high priest or in the churches. And yet, God calls Samuel. And he repeats his name, Samuel, Samuel, Samuel. God knows Samuel, even in the midst of sin. We may have forgotten God, but he has not forgotten us. And he knows us. And in that are the seeds of the gospel. Consider when Jesus meets the Samaritan woman by the well. And he talks to her about uh, the multiple husbands that she has, and the man that she was with then was not her husband. 
and when uh, she realizes that he is the Messiah, she runs off and says, I met the Messiah. He has told me everything that I have done, even though it's a microcosm of that. But it's saying that Jesus sees her true self. He truly sees her in the midst of her sin. And what's amazing is that she doesn't feel shame. She feels relief. Because this cultural authenticity is such a burden. And that she is relieved because now she is known. Even in the midst of her sin, she is known. And in that um, are the seeds of the gospel because the one who knows us is able to extend forgiveness. Consider the prodigal son. I think that I have, I don't have that. What do I have next? No, let's go back. So the prodigal son is someone who wanted their inheritance from the father. They split the inheritance. He ran off and he lived as he wanted to do and he ended up in the pig muck, which was not good for a Jewish boy to end up in the, in the, in the muck of pigs, right? It was a very shameful place to be, the lowest of the low. And he thought, if I just said to my father that I have sinned against heaven and the earth, or I've sinned against heaven and you, that maybe he would take me back. But in that line, it says, um, right before that confession, it says he came to himself. In some translation, it says he came to his senses, but the Greek says he came to himself. And the early Greek fathers made a lot of this, because that was the first time he became integrated, was his self-recognition that he was in lack and that he was in need. And he was like, my father has goodness and generosity. And that if I just confess my sins and go back to him, maybe he will take me, even if it's in a low position. And he has come to himself. And so he starts walking back to the father, and the father runs out before he has even returned home. And so very much the same way, this is where the seeds of the gospel is, is that when we recognize we have lacked, that we have sinned, and that we need the Father, the Father runs out to us. He, he knows us already. If we will just come to ourselves and come to Him, this is where true authenticity comes. This is because we are restored as image bearers in God when we return to Him. We are returned to the relationship we are made for. This is why it's true authenticity. And it is possible through Jesus because Jesus is uh, the exact representation of God, as the writer in Hebrews writes it in chapter 1, verse 3. Or Paul says he's the true image of God in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 4, verse 4. You have this sense that he is the one who is the ideal. He is the truly authentic person. If you want to know who an authentic person looks like, you look to Jesus. But what is Jesus's, um, I'm using this language loosely, how does Jesus self-actualize? How does he become his true self? Okay. How does he become more full? How does he become fully himself? Because it says that from a youth he, were, he was rising in wisdom and stature. Well, I have Philippians 2 as a model of how he pursues authenticity. And so Paul says to the, to the, uh, to the um, communities in, uh, around Philippi, 
Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. So he's calling for them to model themselves after Christ Jesus. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited. But emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see him lowering himself, lowering himself, lowering himself, although his right is to grasp equality with God because it is his right. And in sowing due, in, in the kneeling and in dying, he is raised again. Therefore God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bend, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He is buried and raised. This is the pattern, not just that Jesus has exemplified or given us through um, salvation, but it, it is a pattern in which for us to understand what it means to truly become ourselves. We truly become ourselves when we die in him and are lifted up by him. <clears throat> so this is not a one-time event that we kneel to God, kneel in confession, but I'm sure the prodigal son had to learn how to kneel again and again and again and again, a posture of dying to himself in order to be raised by God. This pattern of self-discovery, this pattern of becoming truly who you are, is expressed in this way, putting off the old nature or the old self and putting on the new self, which is made new in Christ Jesus. This is the pattern of biblical authenticity. And so you see that it mimics the negative and positive liberty. Instead of deconstructing unchosen systems, it put off sin. You're free from sin in order to be free for life. And so you put off the old self in order to put on the new self, which is in Christ Jesus, where you are made in righteousness and holiness. And so as we are restored as image bearers and being um, made into his moral likeness, we become truly who we are. So when Christ says, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. So you see that this is where the paradox um, is understood more clearly. And this is why this is the biblical view for authenticity, is that if you try to save the old self, you lose it all. But if you're able to give that up and die with Christ, then you will be raised with him as a new creation. And so we are so as we continue to do that in our life, not just that one-time event, but in that pattern of putting off and putting on, we truly become who we are because we are becoming more like Christ. <clears throat> I believe that this fulfills the twinned moral ideal that Taylor expresses um, with authenticity to be unique and to be affirmed in that uniqueness. Now, I want to say that in the first moral ideal to be unique, I said that the more we become like God or the more we become like Christ, the more we become ourselves. That's because we are made in his image. What this does not mean is that we don't need to conform our lifestyle or to a subculture where we're trying to look more like other Christians 
than we are to look like Christ. We are to be made in his image, not in the image of other Christians. Now, Paul says, imitate me insofar as I imitate Christ. So you can imitate others. Find, find uh, many Christians that you can find heroic, laudable, exemplary. But it means that you imitate them insofar as they imitate Christ. And so this is no cookie-cutter Christianity. Rather, when we are found in Christ, our individuality is not lost, but found. It is sustained. Our identity is established by God, and so it cannot be lost like the treasures on earth. And two, character does not diminish our personhood, but fortifies it. Um, you can imagine um, uh, that prodigal son who was in the pig muck was less himself than he should be. So you can imagine a child who's lost to drugs. And you think, oh, they're being eaten alive. And when they come back, you go, you're a brand new person. You are you, really you. It doesn't mean that they become now some something else. They become more who they truly are. So this, um, so this is what it means to be uniquely us when we are found in Christ. So I say here that our, we understand our uniqueness when we realize that we are known by God and that we are known as his creatures with dignity, that we are known as sinners, and that we are worthy of his forgiveness because he wants to give it to us. We're not worthy of his forgiveness in the sense that we deserve it, but that he has made us worthy by his sacrifice. If you see what I mean. Uh, and so Paul speaks about if anyone imagines that he knows something, he's speaking about self-knowledge, he does not yet know as he ought to know, but if anyone loves God, he is known by God. So you see that Paul's talk about self-knowledge becomes knowledge that you become aware of God knowing you. Or in 1 Corinthians 13, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Beautiful that God knows you. Not only are we unique, it fulfills that first twin moral ideal, but also the second. And this is where I end. Is that we are affirmed in that uniqueness. One, through forgiveness, as I've just been speaking about, that God forgives our sin. And, uh, and he calls us by name. And he, he will in fact give us a new name as we enter the new heavens and the new earth that he will give us a name that is uniquely us. And also, we are, as C.S. Lewis put it, an ingredient in the divine happiness. That, we're not, that it's not just pity, that God does not just pity us, but that God delights in us. So let me quote C.S. Lewis um, from his sermon, Weight of Glory as a Way to Finish. So he imagines a person who, uh, at death, comes before God, as you can imagine. The satisfaction of having pleased those whom I rightly loved and rightly feared was pure, and that is enough to raise our thoughts to what may happen when the redeemed soul, beyond all hope 
and nearly beyond belief, learns at last that she has pleased him she was created to please. There will be no room for vanity then. She will be free from the miserable illusion that is her doing. With no taint of what we should now call self-approval, she will most innocently rejoice in the thing that God has made her to be. And the moment which heals her old inferiority complex forever will also drown her pride deeper than Prospero's book. A reference to Shakespeare. And then the next quote. The promise of glory is the promise, almost incredible and only possible by the work of Christ, that some of us, that any of us who really chooses, shall actually survive that examination, shall find approval, shall please God, to please God, to be a real ingredient in the divine happiness, to be loved by God, not merely pitied, but delighted in as an artist delights in his work or a father and a son. It seems impossible, a weight or a burden of glory which our thoughts can hardly sustain, but so it is. Okay, so that's the end of my talk. Uh, let's have time for discussion. It has. I mean, I, I was mentioning Katy Perry, Pharrell, right, right. Caitlyn Jenner, and Rachel Dolezal. I don't know, actually. Where do you think? It's one of those things where when you see what's going on today, you wonder how much further can it go in terms of people looking to themselves for expression of, um, or for, for finding meaning. Because you can, like, they're already, I, I want to say, scraping the bottom of the barrel, really, um, to to try to to bring meaning to their life and, and def definitely the younger and younger they're finding that they can't cope, they can't do anything with that. So, I don't know. Yeah, I do think, did you want to respond, Liz? Yeah, I, well, one one thought I had was just, I don't know if you know about the transhumanist movement at all, no. which is people, you know, wanting to use technology to transcend what it means to be human and mm -hmm. replace body parts and upload the consciousness to the internet and all of these sorts of things, so so I do see that um, technology is already becoming and will become more and more a way for people to control, um, you know, even with, like, s genetic stuff before birth, selecting what kind of children mm -hmm. will be born and things like mm -hmm. that, so I, th I still think it has, unfortunately, quite a long way to go, um, yeah, because as long as people can control stuff, more stuff, they will. <laughs> Yeah, you know, uh, I mean, I could be a conspiracy theorist um, or a doomsday uh, person in thinking that. I mean, I can see uh, a rise of totalitarian type of government uh, as long as the people are satisfied with their soma. So I think of like a brave new world type of thing. And uh, you had Neil Postman and others kind of prophesy and Aldous Huxley look to those types of things <clears throat> possibly but I 
uh, I take to heart what Taylor said is that this was not a straight line. This is not the way that it had to be. And I believe in that God's reality, the way he structured it, is that there will be a kickback at some point. There'll be a reverberation where there'll be feedback and we won't be able to bear it. Um, so I don't know what that will look like, but I think in the near future, it leads to more and more empowered governments to dictate how we live as long as we're given our luxury items. I think that that's happened not only nationally, but also globally. But there's got to be a breaking point at some point. It doesn't mean that it will be easy to live through or for children to live through. But I think that it's not in the too distant future. But after that, I don't know. It's not a logical sequence. I mean, it's logical, but it's not a necessary sequence. That's what I mean. Thinking of the, that quote, you know, there's nothing new under the sun. And you said the part of it, you know, the, the medieval thing of people saying, I'm an aristocrat or I'm a blacksmith. I wonder how much of that has changed. People still, I'm a carpenter, I'm a businessman. Has that really changed? That's right. I mean, people still identify by their vocation, uh, especially if it's a, 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 a job where it gives them status or they feel um, injured by it. Is that I'm about a janitor or something like that. Mm. Uh, not seeing that their vocation is worthwhile and perhaps seeing in proper light. I think that what is different is that back then it was, this is my social responsibility to keep the metaphysical framework going. Mm -hmm. Now it is, um, we are still trying to, now we are trying to uh, shape and place our hope and identity by what we do or by what we have or by how we name ourselves, something like that. So that, so there's, it's the same exercise of will, but in a completely different framework. So, so yeah, it, it, it's a different variation of the same theme. But isn't it a battle between our rights and our responsibilities today? That it's our rights that will lead us into anarchy. Mm. And then you get totalitarianism to take over to quiet the civil unrest. That's the, that's the risk. Yeah, Could if rights are pursued without an understanding of response, because yes. pursuing rights is not in itself bad, right? I mean, woman... Well, the, self, selfish rights. Well, <laughs> I mean, you think of the suffragette movement or something like that, but I'm yeah. just saying that, um, or even the civil rights movement, I'm just saying that when we, when we untether rights to responsibilities, or to a moral or a moral framework, then yes, then that can lead to anarchy. But it's not the pursuit of rights in and of itself. Not in a journalistic sense, in a personal sense it might be. Cliff Richards was interviewed mm -hmm. on ITN two nights ago after his court case. He took the BBC to court mm, yes. over this allegation of false allegation of paedophilia. Mm -hmm. And in the interview with the ITN um, interviewer, he, he said the problem today is that democracy without responsibility will lead to anarchy. He said that in the interview mm -hmm. and I think he's bang on. Mm -hmm. We're on a real risk of people going off on tangents and not caring about the whole of society, the majority, and will be governed by extreme minorities. That's what I'm talking about. Yes. I'm well, talking about suffragettes. That's right. totally different. 
Yes, well, when you, when, that's true. When you're talking about democracy, I mean, democracy was considered a low, the lowest form of government among the Greeks because it was yes. just a mob rule. I mean, yeah. when you say, okay, 51% of us don't like the 49%, then we win. Uh, so what really strengthened democracy in America is when there was a, mor uh, when there was a desire for mor a moral center, a moral framework. So when democracy, democracy in and of itself does not carry morality with it, morality has to, has to give shape to how democracy functions. And when we miss it, when we lose our moral framework, I think democracy leads to mob rule. Yeah, I mean, Churchill made a comment about it. It's not the perfect way to govern democracy, but it's the best thing we have. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Any thoughts about this or anything? One sentence would be uh, important. It's only decree. Yeah, we, we have been created to be in relationship with God. Yes. If we put it in practice, God will help us to be effective in the world. Yeah, thank you. That's true. Uh, it is a completely different way of trying to establish meaning by our own will of, to power, mm -hmm. as in uh, to be established in meaning from God's relationship or from, uh, from our Creator and Redeemer. It's a completely different framework, and it, uh, the same pursuit for uh, the moral ideal would take very different paths, and in fact, conflicting paths. Yeah, that's good. Yes, please. Um, I thought it was interesting. Just looking at like the pictures of the guys that go side by side, um, and Jerry and Pharrell, the only person of color that showed up was Pharrell, and um, just thinking about this through a cultural cultural context and the fact that like I think this conversation is very important for our Western white, you know, like in a, in a, to have an American and, you know, Europe and whatever, but I think of like my friends who are from Mexico where mm. family is their identity, community is their identity, or I think of, you know, some of my friends from different cultures where um, how you define yourself and authenticity is very different than how it is defined, you know, by these white true. wealthy gentlemen um, who just thought things, <laughs> you know, and so I just would I'm thinking about how that might change in context, like this discussion. That's true. Um, that's true. <clears throat> so two things about that. Mm -hmm. One, uh, I think the primary audience that I'm speaking to identifies with mostly this. Mm -hmm. um, if I was in Korea or in Mexico, I would give a very different lecture. Mm -hmm. um, but the second thought is that there is a biblical principle there that when I was talking about original sin is trying to find our identity in something created rather than in the creator. I mean, we can try to find identity in things that are really good and are affirmed as very good by God, such as family. Okay. Julie and I went to a church and we didn't 
realize how much an idol family was until we were unable to have children. And then we realized, oh, wow, we have no place here. And I know a lot of single people who've passed through Labrie have felt the same. Uh, well, am I going to say family's bad? Let's get rid of the family so that I can, you know? No, I'm just... It, but when we start trying to place too much meaning on one thing, then we make it an idol. We can do that in all sorts of ways. It doesn't mean that every pursuit is for authenticity or every pursuit for meaning is the exact same way as this. I'm trying to just isolate it. Uh, it's a theoretical framework in which to be able to talk about it. Yeah. Otherwise, we don't talk about it. Uh, and I believe that, I mean, since I've done my work on this, I see it all the time. It just is coming out everywhere. And hopefully there's been many examples in your own mind. But it's not true for all cultures and all people. Absolutely not. Not even for all times. But that history has really influenced where we are culturally now, those especially sitting in this room. So, but thank you. Yeah. Hey, really? Okay, um, I really liked how you defined biblical authenticity um, as the uh, looking at towards the image of God. Mm -hmm. I think as a Christian, especially growing up in the world, it was just really confusing a lot of times because I, I think everybody has that innate desire to be authentic. Unfortunately, being authentic in a pop culture world is not super easy. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's also confusing. I think I've heard other... Um, lectures uh on like in a biblical context about how authenticity is bad and i mm. was really confused about why 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 it was bad but i think just it's helpful to understand like oh no like if you're coming from a place where you're trying to walk and follow god that isn't necessarily bad but perhaps some of the other examples that you gave of corporate culture or um I think even in the church, that was a really helpful distinction to follow. Like, uh, uh, being authentic means following Christ and being in His image, not in the image of other Christians. Yes. And so I think that's kind of my main question now is because it's so subtle and confusing when you're in cultures that kind of form their own identities and then they mix it all in with God and like, oh, because we're the church and this is what God is saying or doing. And so even when you're trying to follow Christ, maybe you'll get pressure from your community of now you're not being one of us or I don't know. So I'm not really quite sure how to deal with that or how to even kind of be aware of it because it's just so subtle. Yeah, that's an excellent question. I mean, you can imagine people in churches, I grew up in a church like this, that uh, if you did not vote toward a, po a certain political party, you could not be a Christian. There is no way that you could honestly say that you're following Jesus if you vote Republican, if you vote Democrat. Uh, I grew up in one of those. Um, uh, my moral <laughs> caliber would have been questioned uh, if I didn't toe the party line. And you see that in churches. I mean, uh, Liberty University certainly takes a strong stance toward politics for example, as evangelicals, or, um, uh, yeah, and it's not to say that politics cannot play a part of faith, that's not what I'm saying, yeah. but when that becomes the identifying marker, yeah. and that someone would more readily be happy when I grew up, if you were a good businessman, 
and you were a woman that uh, um, addressed appropriately, however appropriate is defined, yeah. um, children like this and go to these kind of schools, then you, if, you're, if you kind of look all right, then they're yeah. not going to question your, uh, your relationship to Jesus. Yeah. Because they're going to say, well, all the criteria is there. He's a faithful man. She's a faithful woman. Yeah. Trying to identify their faithfulness by what they wear, or by how they vote, or something like that. These yeah. things will play into how we wear and how we vote um, our relationship to Christ. But those cannot be the primary markers. Yeah. I think one thing in particular I've been struggling with, and it's something I've been studying here, um, for example, suffering. So in the Bible, or with Jesus, like, that's everywhere. Yes. That's every saint or apostle or Jesus himself, like, suffering is just rampant. But in the church today, if you even mention something that's not okay or perfect, it's there's so much pushback or fear. Right. And so how do you be, quote-unquote, authentic in that kind of context when there's so much cultural pressure to just shove it somewhere? Yeah, I mean, there's pressure. I mean, we have to we have to keep our eyes on the Lord. Jeremiah kept his eyes on the Lord, and he looked around and was questioning, God, what are you doing? You're making me say all these things, and they're not coming true for years and years and years. Uh, and probably had lots of doubt if there wasn't such a push by God on him to do so. Uh, and now we see that his words were proven right. But he, to, to be faithful, mm -hmm. uh, not to be so in the way of being authentic, yes, I mean, but, but in a real sense of being faithful to the call of God on his life, mm -hmm. uh, that was a real, real act of courage uh, to speak truth in a midst yeah. where people didn't want to hear it. Yeah. So uh, Schaefer... Uh, he wrote a book on environmentalism in 1972. Uh, and people are like, this great apologist, and now he's writing a book on environmentalism. That doesn't make sense. Why are you writing? And they wonder if it was a social cause. And he's like, well, that was, that's just, basically I'm just reading the Bible. <laughs> Instead of looking around on what he should say, yeah. he's reading the Bible and speaking yeah. from that. Yeah. So when we think about what does it mean to be um, uh, followers of Christ, we need to look to Christ rather than just to the Christians around us. doesn't mean that we can't take notice or aid from the Christians around us, but our primary focus is Jesus himself. Yeah. Uh, and suffering is a part of that, taking up our cross. Um, but we also need to be careful with that. Paul says, you know, I could burn for the poor or I burn on the stake yeah. and have not love, then I'm nothing. Yeah. You know, clinging symbol. I guess what I'm saying is it seems sometimes it just feels hard or even confusing to try to be authentic in the church. I mean, of course, there's I always see. boundaries like you don't want to go tell everybody anything. But at least in some of the churches I've been part of, it's just so perfectionist oriented that it seemed like just how would you even go about trying to be authentic? Mm. I don't it's really hard. I think finding other friends who also genuinely desire to follow Christ no matter what. That's very important to have around you. In the context of a local church, I think that relationships that you have or don't have can define that to some degree. So you could if, if picture yourself in a circle of people 
Um, and some of the people you don't know very well, and you kind of think, oh my, they've been out there. Uh, Christians of long experience, um, uh, and you start to put them on a pinnacle if you're not careful, uh, thinking that they are what they are really not, which is human. <laughs> and then you, you get people that you know, and you know their warts and all, you know the things that they're going through, because they have the opportunity to display some authenticity to you and you have the authenticity sorry you have the opportunity to grow in your own authentic understanding of the realities of life today right so relationships is an, uh, can be an important part uh, <coughs> i just uh, as you were talking reminded me a lot of my struggles in university for, for authenticity and who I was, identity. So it was involved in a lot of ex existentialist considerations in French literature. And so it reminded me a lot of that place of coming to an existential crisis, you know, kind of the horror of Conrad. But, but, you know, as we're talking about all these different things that are happening, what's going to happen in the future, I have hope because of my own story of, of coming to a place of absolute desperation and realization that nothing I fabricated in the existential sense of that satisfied or saved me. And mm -hmm. I cried out for a savior. So, mm -hmm. so we can look at all those movements and despair a little bit. But I have hope. I have hope that Bruce Jenner uh, doesn't sleep well at night. Mm -hmm. you know? I know people who are crying out for a real authenticity. And I don't. I think at the core, and maybe I'm naive, but I I hope and I believe at the core that most people they know it's not authentic. Mm -hmm. They know this is not the image they were. You know, that void is not filled somehow. Sure, I guess if you're seared or, you know, you're... But but deep down, if you can have those conversations, and I know you've had those. Um, so that gives me hope to, you know, not to despair, but to speak that to people. You know, mm -hmm. what do you really want? What's... You know what I'm saying? I do. Okay, I think that's... I think of Carson McCullers, <coughs> you know, the lonely heart is a restless hunter or something like that. Yeah. But you also have the positive spin of that, where Augustine says, my heart is restless until it rests in thee. Yes, yeah. Uh, and so our hearts are restless, and there is the seeds of the gospel in that, too. Yeah. And so that's why I said, you know, um, yeah, so, so it's right. It's like I, we're on this press, I think people are on this precipice. I mean, things are getting more and more obvious, the horror, you know. But mm -hmm. if, you know, you eat, drink, and be merry, that, that, that reality is staring everyone in the face, you know. And, uh, I think we're we're the hope to speak to that, that horror. And I think that the uh, <coughs> Christians have a real opportunity to be a voice. Yes. If they're not just trying to be a cookie cutter Christians yeah, or totally. just have uh, alternative communities to any other kind of community, but people who are made alive in Christ, mm -hmm. um, in in deep relationship and authentic relationship, I think that's what people are really longing for. Not just a new identity marker. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Thank you. I wonder a bit if, if it's that Christians have a hard time admitting, <laughs> that's the word, that Jesus is the 
example of what you and I are meant to be. And so we could say, as the Father sent me, now I'm sending you to do the same things, to be the same kind of dependent person mm-hmm. on the Father. It seems like we live in a world where people forget that. Even amongst Christians, you see so much. I remember growing up in a church where uh, you could see people imitating the pastor, you know, the leader. They talked like he talked, his gestures, his words, his stories. And they almost, it was like they were imitating him completely. And, but if Jesus is what you know, you and I are meant to be, I wonder why we try to be something else, like a great this, a great that, a studied this, a, you know, comes I think it's because it's measurable. It's measurable. Uh, we can. It's more easily to have currency, social currency, to say I'm this and not that. Uh, to say I'm a preacher. It's not exactly. It, well, it's currency in some circles. Yes. And this might be more of a lunch discussion question than an actual like lecture discussion question. Um, but so you're basing your idea of a Christian perspective on authenticity on the fact that we're made in the image of God. What is the image of God? I just kind of hit me like I know a lot of like Christians center on the fact like well I'm made in that image, but what is that image that we're supposed to be representing and also trying to like replicate in our lives? Well, in my section on the biblical narrative. Uh, I try to say, and, and, and I didn't do it succinctly or concisely, mm-hmm. but the image of God is a reflection of God and it's a representative of God. Those are the two forms of a reflection and a representation. Uh, we, the image of God is that, um, I said it is, it is not a functional category of rationality, um, of willpower or free, free will or something like that. Uh, rather, it is a relational category, so it's just something that God has named. It's not, it's not a capacity within us. It is something that identifies me as morally obligated to someone else in order to know who I am and why I am. Uh, and so the image of God is fundamentally a relational category before it is anything else. Um, so I can't say that it's other than a reflection of God or, or, or an image of God. It's not some kind of category that we can kind of go on dictionary.com. Uh, but in that relationship, it means that I'm supposed to reflect him. That um, uh, that means in order to reflect God, I, you know, I think Calvin refers to being a mirror, that I have to be facing God in order to be the right reflection of him. So the first one is that relational category of reflecting God um, in relationship. But that reflection becomes representation. So God gives Adam and Eve the sovereignty, or not absolute sovereignty, but just a a dominion over the earth, to steward, to be responsible for, to care for, to, um, to, um, to help it flourish and thrive. Well, that is their act of imitating God, not as God has created from ex nihilo, but as a sub-creator, as being creative within the domain of what he's created, within the moral framework of what he's created. And so, so within that, we represent God 
uh, in the world as being those who take proper dominion. And in fact, I didn't talk about it, but in Hebrews 2, uh, well, in Psalm 8, you have this song of humanity and saying, who is man that you are mindful of him? You know, who are you that you're, you're mindful of humanity? Uh, that we should be rulers of the birds and the, and the fields and the, and the cows and whatnot. It's just marvelous that we're, we're below the God, we're below God, but we are above all these other things. Like, what remarkable responsibility. And so the psalmist is just amazed that God has given us this responsibility when he could have done the job himself quite well, thank you. But he's given it to us, even in our mistakes, Adam and Eve, like, um, even in our sinfulness, we have been given this responsibility. And so, uh, and so creation groans because we're doing this job very badly but it still depends on us to do it. And it is through Christ in Hebrews 2, it recounts that Psalm 8, but it says, um, all things were made in subjection to him. Him being the, um, is the son of man, what are you mindful of him? So in subjection to humanity. All things are to be in subjection to humanity, but we do not see it yet in subjection. But we see Jesus. And that was um, that's the author of Hebrews saying is that, but Jesus is the one who is, a, who is the champion, who is the author of our salvation. And in him, we are restored in that image. And being restored in that image means we're restored in that responsibility. So the image not only talks about being in relationship with God, but also having that responsibility. Uh, so, I don't know. Did you want more than that? that that's enough for now. Oh, okay. <laughs> Thank you for satisfying my question. <laughs> <laughs> we can still discuss it at lunch. Uh, and then Colossians says, to answer your question, one fifteen says, Christ is the, is the image of God. And what is the image? Colossians one fifteen says, He is the, the uh, image of, of the invisible God. So I don't think it's something else other than Him. For us, it's Him. Um, I was thinking about um, how you talked about um, distancing ourselves or breaking down some of the uh, unchosen systems. uh, Not not just institutions, but just um, pieces that make us who we are. And Uh, I assume that sometimes um, we need to do that. Um, uh, how do we know when it's good and how much we need to break that door down in order to find um, that meaning for ourselves? Um, yeah, I can think of lots of examples, uh, but yeah, it's just, uh, it doesn't have to be answered, but it's just... No, I mean, I can imagine that. Let's say that someone is born poor and black. Let's say that. Um, and so they are in a place where they didn't, I mean, people are born in unfair situations. Uh, with the cards stacked against them. 
we were watching Black Panther last night. <laughs> so that's why I was thinking that. Um, um, if I took the identity of saying, I'm just poor and I'm just black as a way of referencing my littleness or referencing some somehow making it belittled somehow or dim, um, or diminishing, I think, well, okay, we have to deconstruct what certain things mean at times to say, well, no, black can be beautiful. Black is beautiful. Um, I don't have to be ashamed of that. Uh, I don't have to attribute it in a way that maybe society is taken with poverty and say, well, okay, this is my condition. But I don't have to live into that as if, um, you know, some people will take poverty and saying, well, I can't choose anything else. And they're broken because they're born in, in poverty. Now, some people are unable to get out of that poverty. But it can get to a point where they choose it to define them. Rather than saying, no, I mean, I am made in the image of God whether I'm poor or wealthy. Uh, I've seen I've seen people broken by being born in wealthy families, as well. Uh, not to say that both are equal <laughs> in that way, but uh, <clears throat> so yeah, there are times when we have to be very careful about the things that or the labels that are assigned to us from birth. We have to be very careful on the meaning of those things. Uh, <clears throat> did you want? Did you want to? Did you have more? Yeah. Um, yeah. So one example, what's one thing that I was thinking of was um, I, I often heard, and I'm not sure what, to what extent it's true, I actually do think it's true, uh, is um, growing up as a Christian, at some point you need to um, sort of take it into your own, and sometimes, often, that involves... Um, distancing yourself from it completely for a little while, or seriously questioning, um, or experiencing it in your own way, or like different from how you yeah. experienced it as a child when it was simply given to you. Um, I say so yes and no, uh, because I've heard that many times where people say they almost feel guilty for being a Christian because they were raised in a Christian family. Mm -hmm. As if, well, obviously I became a Christian because I was just raised in a Christian family. As, as if believing in Christ now has become uh, something secondary or subordinate to a true faith. Um, I mean, we can just be thankful that if one is born in a Christian family, let... Um, so I don't think it's hypothetical, but you, let me go with a hypothetical. If it is true, then thank God that you're born in a Christian family and that you've taken it on. You see what I mean? Uh, it doesn't lessen the value of believing it to be true just because you're <coughs> raised in it. But in our society, it's seen, to, it's seen that way. Well, obviously, you only believe Christianity because you're, um, you're a Western white person raised in a Christian family. Obviously, you're going to believe it, just like a Muslim raised in um, uh, a Muslim family would believe it in um, Afghanistan, for instance. Well, that doesn't diminish that it could be true. You know? 
just because one is born into certain circumstances doesn't make it less or more true. Uh, I think that that is a, a view of cultural relativism that has kind of hampered some of our own, uh, or can hamper people's own ascent. At the same time, I would say you gotta you gotta grow up as well. You gotta mature and say that this is my faith. You cannot you cannot just tug on the the coattails of mom and dad when you stand before Jesus Himself. You're gonna answer to Him yourself, and not because you know. Uh, uh, that's not to say that mom and dad aren't important, but it's just saying that they are not your salvation. And some people, uh, I've seen some people define them, their salvation by their relationship to their parents rather than to God. Um, or them not being a Christian because they're not their parents. Rather than saying, actually, your decision is with Jesus and you, not you and your parents. That is a different order of relationship. Is that you want to say more? Um, what What do you mean by yeah? Yeah, no, I just think that it's um, definitely like you, it, we have this sort of meta um, uh, meaning from God, <laughs> but we still have to work it out every day. Yes, we do. Yes. So um, that's true. I mean. People come here and they, um, I mean, I even continue to grow in my faith every day. Um, and if I'm not growing, then I'm not obeying. <laughs> Doesn't mean that I go from mountaintop to mountaintop. Sometimes my learning is in a wilderness period. Uh, and I can only look back as, oh, that was a time of growth. Um, it is a is a period of maturation that we need to mature to say what are we choosing for ourselves am i being a doctor just because my mom and dad have pressured me to be a doctor and now 10 years down the road i find out that i never wanted to be a doctor i hate being a doctor and, and i've just let my life be pushed to that point uh, yeah, I, I think that there's many ways that we need to mature to make responsible choices for our life because we are accountable for our choices and for our life. Yeah. I just had a thought um, with along the lines of authenticity and identity, and I was in a leadership program a few years ago at the beginning of um, university, and we were doing an icebreaker game, and one of the games was to pair off with a person and we had to say, I am blank 10 times, <laughs> something that identified us as a, an individual, a person, whatever. So, um, <laughs> and I think the idea of it was to get to know the people in your in the, this program, but also as a challenge to us um, to kind of like figure out who, like, yeah, who are you? Think about words, 10 words basically that describe you are as a person as an individual so you know you the girl that I was paired with started out and it was you know like I am uh, I am a student I am a lifeguard I am uh, just thinking about all these things that identified um, us and I just thinking back to that I thought that's so interesting like um, that it's expected that we should have this it's almost like in that case was expected that we should have this list <coughs> of words that identified who we are mm 
Um, and just thinking, I remember thinking afterwards about being a Christian, and all I wanted to say was, I'm a child of God. <laughs> like, mm. And that's, that's who I am. <laughs> like, mm. um, but how, yeah, our culture, maybe not every culture, but our culture, um, expects that of us, that we have these lists of things that make us who we are. Yeah. So, that's really it's good. Really tangible, like activity that we did that no. really put that in perspective. Yeah, it's external. amazing how quickly we identify. External, I am this. Just, everything's yeah, external. Like everything is external. Always, exactly. it's yeah. the biggest thing yeah. Yeah. in our your culture. Job, things your, are external. Yeah. yeah, that you're a wife or a mother or a student. This or color of this. Yeah. And the and the thing is, is those external things are important. They're they are bad. created goods. Yeah, exactly. But they can't. Um, but when we when them. we start making it a part of the I amness of ourselves. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, some people have gone so far to say, uh, you know, I said, oh, so-and-so is a teacher. And they're like, I'm not a teacher. That's what I do. Yeah. And I was like, okay, fair enough. Um, I need to be cautious with language. Uh, but when, but sometimes we start using those things as identify, like ultimate meaning identifiers rather than something secondary. Um, because those things are temporary. That's so good. That's really helpful. Okay, well, let's end there. Uh, record time. So, uh, yeah, so there, there might be some more tea, coffee, and desserts. All right, thanks.